Hey, really quick, before we get into the podcast, we aim to bring you the most practical, impartial advice in cybersecurity. So if you like what we do and you want to help us out, please follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now. Okay, let's get into the episode. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. This podcast is my attempt to document lessons from cybersecurity experts who can go deeper than most on critical topics. My hope is that you use these insights to fortify your business and grow your career, and maybe one day partner with SIFT to select your next cybersecurity vendor. I hope you share and enjoy. Welcome, Richard, to No BS Cybersecurity. How are you? Hey, James, I'm great. Good to be here. Yeah, wonderful. So we are a fairly new podcaster, one of our first guests. And for the folks who are just tuning in and maybe don't know who you are or haven't followed you on LinkedIn yet, which I highly recommend for anyone that's listening, Richard, tell us who you are, what you do, and what you're working on. Okay. I'm Richard Steenan. I'm a industry analyst, which means you focus on a particular industry, in this case, cybersecurity, and attempt to delve as deep as I can into it and know as much as I can about it, but also to kind of proselytize for the industry, though calling out people when they step over the line, I guess, or companies in particular when they do. What does stepping over the line mean? Oh, it's when a vendor makes outrageous claims for what their product does. So many times I've had to pick on, I don't know, Cisco. I just think over the years, I've walked out of their analyst presentations because they'll just take whatever the latest things that they've acquired are and put it together in a big PowerPoint presentation. And every single year, I have a completely different marketocracy, as we call it, or architecture. And architecture, that's new. Is it Richard coin term? No, 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 I, I did not make that up. But Cisco is the poster child for architectures. It's like the marketing decides what their, how their product portfolio fits together. It's just, and that's just always going to be the case with them. And then in the past, I've criticized McAfee and certainly came down hard on the Intel acquisition of McAfee, which never, ever, ever made any sense. And soon as every single executive involved in the decision for Intel to buy McAfee, as soon as they had left, then, you know, the new executives could finally unwind that deal and. Now McAfee is essentially no more, right? Sure. Yeah. So what are some of the trickle-down effects of architecture as it pertains to primarily SMBs who maybe don't have the same access to data as some of the large enterprise orgs? They don't have 25 people on staff to sift through the market themselves. What does that marketing-led rollout mean for the SMBs who are dealing with information overload, marketing hype, all this jargon, how difficult is it for them to differentiate what vendors do? Yeah, it's so confusing to the market to have just this constant shifting in messaging, right? To always be part of the latest thing. In reality, companies go to market to solve a problem, right? And it might be hey, people are coming in through open ports on our network, so let's have a firewall and we can stop that. And you could just say, hey, we stop access through open ports on your firewall with a firewall, and that's and you're done, right? That's what people actually are looking for, and that's what they buy. 
But then later on, marketing gets involved and frankly, the analysts get involved and they want to make a name for themselves. So they make up something new. My favorite right now, uh, my pet peeve is if you're in the market for threat intelligence, you can't actually Google threat intelligence vendors because in all of its wisdom, Gartner said, we're going to call this digital risk protection. So a name, each of those words mean absolutely nothing. They're not specific, right? It's digital. Yeah. But it, that doesn't differentiate it from analog risk protection because that's not a thing. Everything we talk about in IT is digital nowadays. Risk doesn't mean anything to anybody or means different things to everybody. And I don't care what it is, we're not going to protect risk, right? Nobody protects risks, right? You get rid of risks, you diminish risks, you lessen risk. So Gardner came up with this crazy name, DRP, it even sounds derpy, for something that was like really obvious. Threat intelligence companies that go out and they monitor sites on the dark web and they tell you when bad guys are plotting against your assets or people. Easy to understand. And now it's not because architecture got involved. So if there's an SMB, right? An IT manager at a rural hospital in Iowa comes to you and says, Richard, I can't figure this stuff out. And the places where I'm supposed to be able to go, the Gartners of the world, they're making it even more confusing for me by taking something that should be easy to understand and rebranding it so that they can possibly own this you know, new market domain or whatever. What actionable steps can these SMBs take in order to find clarity in the market and actually find vendors and solutions for problems that they're just trying to solve for their business? Yeah, good question. So I think what everybody does is talk to their peers. And it would be so great as a first step is to get involved in a group where you can find those peers, right? Because usually at an SMB, you know, you are probably an IT person first, right? You're managing the desktops for everybody or the website and eventually the e-commerce site, right? So you're doing all this IT stuff and security is a part of that, but it's not your primary role. You may not have peers that you can reach out to say, hey, what are you doing about this problem with fraudulent access? People are using stolen credit cards on my website. You know, you should talk to peers. So I highly recommend you get involved with your local chapter of ISSA, SIM, tons of local organizations where you'll run into your peers, direct peers. It's awesome. And some of them will be at larger organizations who know what they've done in a more uh, mature environment that's more highly regulated and how they seek compliance as well as trying to be secure. And you can learn from all those. So that, that'd be a good first step. Are there any geographical agnostic groups that an IT manager should join absolutely right now today? Something that's not just geared towards CISOs, which is what I see all the time. Are there any just general communities online that an IT manager at an SMB or an information security officer should join right away and they'll immediately find some value? Or is it more about joining your local communities? Yeah, it's pretty local though. You know, even if you join the Cloud Security Alliance, which is a global organization now, they drive you towards the local membership because they're, they are local membership organizations as are 
the ISS Osaka. So think you're always going to have that local, but they do online events, especially post-COVID. So, yeah. And then, you know, you can find particular groups on Reddit, for instance. There's a cybersecurity group on Reddit that quite often is talking about jobs and careers, but also will talk about products and solutions and problems and how to solve them. Yeah. You know, Reddit, I think, is an under-discussed community, right? There's a ton of value on Reddit. And I think the anonymity of it, maybe it causes a little bit of barrier to entry in terms of trust, but there's some awesome information out there on Reddit. And I've heard of Slack channels and, and different Slack groups and things like that, where you can go and you can talk to your peers, especially if you're evaluating solutions. I know CyberNest is a newer community that's come out. Have you heard of CyberNest? I have not. That'd be really good. I know there are groups on Slack and Discord. I just can't face having Slack is already a busy place for me with all the vendors that we partner with on it or we're on their Slack channels. So I just don't want to add discussion groups to it. I like to keep that. It's just LinkedIn or just Twitter that I do that. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's awesome. So if you are listening now, you know, one of the best things that you can do is join some of these groups, local chapters or Reddit or online forums. If you're looking for clarity, talking to your peers seems to be the number one way to find accurate information that's hopefully um, free. We know that barrier to entry on analyst research and Gartner and things like that can be a little daunting. So utilize some of these free groups and the expertise of your peers. If you are looking for clarity in the cybersecurity market and follow Richard on LinkedIn, he's always providing value on there. And Richard, you've been around the block, right? You've analyzed over 3,000 cybersecurity vendors. You've published the security yearbook and you've seen firsthand how the industry has evolved. And I want to take a moment to just kind of cut through the noise here. Why do you think SMBs think that they're invisible to hackers? right? And what's the real deal? Are they actually sitting ducks? Or is there some truth to the we're too small to be noticed idea? I'm curious about that myth of invisibility that some of these SMBs kind of think maybe is the reality. What's your take on that? Yeah, you're not invisible at all. The attackers have a, at the level of all the ransomware we see, the attackers aren't targeting, right? They're not looking for valuable sources they're looking for everybody so they cast a very very wide net and they look just for your vulnerabilities so the only way to not be targeted or victim is you know, not to have those vulnerabilities which is a daunting task in the first place an smb can actually end up being more secure than a large organization because they don't have the exposure surface right and so they may have a website but you for sure, host it behind a Cloudflare and make sure that all the servers are hardened and the WordPress is protected by WordFence. And pretty soon, there's not a lot of exposure. You're pretty much down to don't click on links sent to you through spam emails. Not an easy thing to counter, but then you can limit the exposure, right? So you lose your computer, but you're not on a corporate network, so you're not going to lose the entire organization. Yeah. So. What can that CEO at an SMB who hasn't thought about cybersecurity in the past, but they're seeing the headlines in the news, 
and they're thinking, I've got to do something, right? They don't have an MSP or an MSSP yet. They've just been doing business as they always have, but they realize there's some invisible danger that they don't know a lot about. What steps can they take out of the gate starting from zero? Are there a couple things that they can maybe implement at their business to significantly reduce their threat exposure? Yeah, you know how when people often comment how when you're, for instance, thinking of getting married, all of a sudden it seems like everybody you know is getting married. Or when you're having your first child, it seems like everybody's pregnant. Or after you've had your first child, it's like, all I see is young couples with children and strollers. So as soon as you start thinking about security, then you're going to become more aware of all the great content out there where you can get advice. I used to get frustrated that even though I had at one point one of the most popular cybersecurity blogs on the internet, we're talking 2005, 2006 timeframe, I would just like rail, you got to do this, you got to do that. Nobody would ever do it. And it took a while to just realize that, well, if you're the type of organization that doesn't do basic hygiene and you know basic management of identities, you're going to get hit by this stuff. But you're also not the kind who's reading blog posts from industry analysts like me. So, so, but if you're listening to this podcast, then I think as a first step, you have to do the mental exercise where you project forward to worst case scenario, you've been breached and you get your team together, whatever that is. If you're the CEO, you get your direct reports, even the the head of sales, the head of manufacturing, the head of distribution, get them all in a room. And you say, look, let's just hypothesize that we don't have any computers starting right now. All the computers are down. How do we stay in business? And walk back from that. You know, so basically, you're, we're talking about resilience and the ability to recover. Okay, we don't have computers, but we really do need computers. Right? In other words, we all need email. How do we get that back? Well, We'll put a plan in place where everybody can bring in their home computers or have access to email over the cloud instead of the server that's in the closet back here. And start figuring out just how much all of these assets that you have, how much your business depends on them, right? And you're going to, in that process, you're going to figure out the crown jewels. You're going to figure out, whoa, if the Active Directory server is down for some reason, we're dead in the water. Nothing happens. So now you start thinking about, well, how can we have a backup of it? How can we maybe move it to the cloud and let Microsoft take care of keeping it up and running? And you just start going through that process. And after after just starting that, you'll be thinking about it. And starting in the back of your mind going, just as soon as you start thinking about it, it's going to happen, right? So up till now, you've been not thinking of it on purpose because you're worried. It's as soon as I mention it, it's going to happen. And now that worry is going to get you thinking about making investments in security. And, and it may be that you hire somebody who knows something about security, but likely, most likely your team knows what has to be done. You just empower them to actually do it, right? They're going to go, you know, we don't have good user onboarding controls. And we don't have a real fast and easy way to, to get them off the rolls when they leave the organization. And we should do that pretty fast. As a matter of fact, you know, that guy who left in the huff yelling insults at us four months ago, 
Uh, somebody, he tried to log in remotely last week. What's he doing? You know, maybe we should worry about that. And that will just start the mindset where you start to realize what you have to do to stay secure. Yeah, you're gathering the key stakeholders and then running a scenario, right? Beginning with the end in mind, right? If the worst case scenario happens, how are we going to stay in business? And what are the implications of this system going down or that going down? Exactly. And those key stakeholders are going to be the same ones that you call on. That will be the core of your incident response team. So when there is an incident, you get them all Basically, you've got a call list and you call them all and get them running, trying to solve the problem, limit the damage, communicate with the right people on the outside if you need to, your customers first, of course, law enforcement, regulators after that. So it's, yeah, I got to hear the uh, CIO of Colonial Pipeline talk about that morning. She got a call at 5.30 in the morning, woke her up, and they said, that's Something going on, we, you know, we don't have access to our operations center anymore because we're frozen solid, right? They lost all their computers. What do they do? And she made the call right there, shut it down. We don't want whatever it is to get into the gas pipelines that we got all over the country. Yeah. And we hear about those sorts of stories in the news, right? The big ones, the MGMs, Verizon, right? These massive companies, Colonial Pipeline. Have you ha heard any stories that maybe didn't make the headlines that you can share with us? Maybe walk us through something that you've heard about or a breach and tell us what happened and kind of the implications of that. I think there's one that it was covered, but it's now ancient history that is super, super important. And that's one that was given the code name Buckshot Yankee. And this occurred in 2008 timeframe. So... 15 years ago. And there was a silly little worm that somebody had created that was, it was possible to load it on a USB thumb drive. And if you plugged it into a system, it would infect that computer and basically a Windows computer, and it would spread itself to all other Windows computers that it could see. It was called agent.btz. And it never caused much of a problem, but F-Secure in Finland, you know, had a signature for it and had pushed it out. And everybody had a, a, every antivirus solution could stop it. So somehow in 2008, agent.btz was introduced via a thumb drive into a skiff in a forward operating base in the U.S. military. So in other words, Afghanistan or Iraq, because we had forward operating bases in both those theaters then. And immediately spread from the Cipernet, which is a secure internet, to Nippernet, the less secure uh, national network for all of the Defense Department. At the time, the Defense Department had 3 million Windows PCs, all running Windows XP, and basically infected them to the point where they're no longer useful because they're just all they're doing is chattering with all the rest of the computers on the network. We're going down. It was a disaster. So this uh, group within the Defense Department, headed up by, uh, I don't know if he was a general yet, a guy named Keith Alexander, was tasked with stopping this. And the way they stopped it is they shut off all the networks and shut down all the computers. So three and a half million computers around the world 
250 bases and, of course, operations in the U.S. So the attack, we still don't know if it was on purpose or just some idiot plugging something in, but regardless, it pretty much took down the U.S. military. They gave a name to the attack called Buckshot, or to the recovery called Buckshot Yankee. And it was whack-a-mole because they would, you know, shut down all the PCs, bring them up one at a time and re-image them manually, you know, with floppy disks, right? Because, you know, the military, this is Windows XP, system security center, system management center doesn't work with their version of Windows XP. So they couldn't do it remotely. So manually go around every single machine, rebuild it from scratch. And then they get it back online and it would connect to the network and talk to other machines that were infected and get reinfected. It just went on for months, cost them millions of dollars to recover from. Possibly, I think I once calculated, it probably cost them a billion dollars to recover from this. And you can still find, it's hard to research because you know they weren't talking about it, but I found one base in Texas where the members of the IT department had gotten award medals for their extraordinary work during Buckshot Yankee. In other words, they had to spend late nights cleaning up machines. So great example. You know, it's just, just writ large, the problems with the running out-of-date operating systems. Big, big problem. By the way, the Defense Department still pays for a separate support contract for Windows XP because there's so much inertia, they just can't upgrade. And that's, a lot of organizations are like that, right? It's like, if, hey, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And Windows XP does your books for you and that's all you need, then, you know, I upgrade. Yeah, that is a story I hadn't heard before. And, and I'm sure it's new to a lot of our listeners. And when you say a billion with a B, like that really puts into perspective how a tiny little thumb drive can cripple such a massive operation, right? So imagine what it can do for a 50-person manufacturing plant in Kentucky, right? Like they are shut down entirely. And when you look at supply chain and the cost of machines being shut down for two days or three days, even if you are able to remediate, that cost of that breach just continues to grow exponentially in terms of losses and reputation. And outside of just the financial implications, tell us what other things kind of are the consequences of a breach. So think of the printer of my books. So every year I contract with a printer to produce a hardcover copy of my book. For me, of course, I'm down last minute. There'll be a conference, either RSA or Black Hat coming up. I got to have it on a certain date. So year before last, got the files to them in time, and then they got hit by ransomware and basically shut down. They have nine printing plants in the United States, and they're all shut down. They had to inform all the customers that, hey, there's going to be a delay because we got hit by ransomware. And I was very impressed, though, you know, because obviously they didn't have a security team, right? The president of the company had to do all the communication with the customers. You know, my book was a short enough run that it was running on a digital press. So it took the full three weeks to get the digital presses back up. Interestingly, the Heidelberg presses, which are the offset, which are all mechanical, you know, there's no digital anything about it except the on-off switches and relays. And those were up in three days. They just had to make sure they still work. 
that's easy if you had if you'd already etched the plates they just slap them on the drums and get them rolling it's great so but they did manage to recover from the ransomware with backups and i was so impressed that an old industry they're obviously fairly well run and they actually had backups of everything they just had to find them and reinstall them and clean up systems so that's if you're worried about ransomware tell me about your backup solution do you have backups? Do you do it continuously? Or can you at least recover back to where you were yesterday? And how fast can you do that? And do you test that? So pick a weekend and back everything up and recover from your backups and see if it works. Yeah, recovery is a massive part of incident response and remediation and recovery is that last element that's so crucial to staying in business post-breach, right? I think I read a statistic that about 60% of SMBs that suffer a cyber attack close their doors within six months. And so having those backups are so critical to survival of those sorts of breaches. And you mentioned earlier about your blog, your sub stack. Do you write about those sorts of things? What sort of topics do you cover in your sub stack for our audience who may want to go read a little bit more about some of the things you write and, and your perspectives. Yeah, so I kind of have two themes right now. One is the security industry, and that's the name of the blog is the security industry. So I cover the health of the industry, which sectors are growing, which sectors are not growing. The, currently, we're in a downturn in investing, and it's maybe turning into a downturn in employment as well. It's pretty much even unemployment right now but certainly not the fantastic growth that we saw in the last three years. But I'm also building in public. So I do periodically post updates on my progress building a what I call a data-driven analyst firm. So we less than two years ago, we launched a web app that gives you access to all the data we keep, 3,600 companies. So I like to just let people know what's going on there because it's, it's fun to see because we're, I believe we're changing how the industry is going to do product selection in industry analysis. And it's going to move away from reports, which people still like, but it doesn't scale. It's hard to like just produce enough reports to cover the industry and move a step to the left. And here's the data. If you've got a research project, just use the data and get the answers to your questions right away. Do you feel like the market is shifting from reports and Excel spreadsheets being cobbled together by a two-person security team to more of a data-driven approach to understanding the market, vendor selection. How important is data going to be over the next three, five, ten years for specifically SMB teams in terms of understanding the market and, and doing evaluations given there's you know over 11,000 security vendors who claim that they can solve every challenge that any customer could ever have. Yeah, you know, well, data certainly is, I think, a better way to approach uh, large problems like this. You're still going to come down to relying on expertise, though. And SMB doesn't even have the expertise to sort through all the data. So they really do need a trusted partner. That's why I see a lot of movement towards using managed security service providers. And selecting one of those is, you know, usually people go with a local 
MSSP. That's why there's so many MSSPs. And they usually end up with a, almost a concierge service from them and feel comfortable with it and get the kind of 24 by 7 support that they need. Yeah. So even with the data, they still need the expertise, right? And number one, it's understanding the market. Number two, the hands-on keyboard, right? Even if they have access to the data and they're able to select the optimal vendor, they still have to have hands-on keyboard, right? If in the event that something needs to be changed and, and updated and vulnerabilities need to get patched, someone has to do that work. Is there enough security expertise for every SMB to have somebody on staff or are we moving more towards the MSP, MSSP, where that talent is consolidated at an organization who then serves their clients? What are you seeing? Well, both of those things are happening. We are, MSSPs are basically going to be the ones handling the day-to-day load of fighting off attacks. They can, it takes minimum staff of 20 to be able to actually have people looking at screens 24 by 7 during holidays and weekends as well. And if the bigger vendors usually have MSSPs, usually have 50 or more staff SOC personnel, right, who are actually triaging incidents, reporting on them, escalating, all the rest. But every organization can easily get security expertise. If you've got IT people on staff, one of them can become the local security expert. doesn't take that much, right? It just takes us knowledge and curiosity to get into it, understand your own systems and your own business processes and start identifying places where you've got to shore up your security defenses. Hey, it's James here. Really quick, well done for making it to the midpoint of the episode. If you're enjoying what you're hearing right now, remember to drop us a follow. And if you're really enjoying it, please leave us a review. With that said, let's get back to the episode. I know that a lot of folks believe that cybersecurity is going to break the bank, right? And it is a barrier to entry for a lot of SMBs who say, you know, we know we need to do it. We just don't have the money, right? And so you've recently written about the role of angel investors in the cybersecurity ecosystem. These are individuals who often take substantial risks with their own money to fuel startups. And this got me thinking about a common myth among SMBs that only big investments or partnerships with large firms can make a real impact in their cybersecurity posture. My question is, do SMBs really need to go after big money or big partnerships to make a meaningful difference in their cybersecurity? Or can smaller, more strategic investments also pay off? And if going big isn't always the answer... What's one actionable step that SMBs can take to strategically invest in their cybersecurity and how can they make the most of limited resources to get the best protection possible? Well, first of all, a lot of the biggest security vendors won't sell to you at all. They just sell multi-million dollar solutions and they're not interested in selling to small companies, period. In the cutting edge ones, sometimes they you know, make a point of not being able to support hundreds of small businesses. They'd rather go after one big bank or something. So, so you may not have access to those big solutions. But frankly, I am always a proponent of going after, of leapfrogging the, not necessarily the competition, but just 
leaping ahead. Put yourself on the cutting edge for once. So if you need a database, right? Do not go to Oracle for your database or and don't do a trade-off between Oracle and SAP. You do not need that and you will never be able to afford it. Look at some of the solutions that are out there, right? There's database as a service, right? From AWS, 15 minutes, you can be up and running and paying with a credit card. It, watch those costs. They, they can escalate quickly. So yeah, I'm a big proponent of leapfrogging by going after the latest and greatest solutions. And luckily, the latest and greatest solutions are trying to find you on the internet. So it's not that hard to find them. They make themselves well known. You can ask around. You can tell what's hot and cool. I've had to do that because I'm building something, right? So I have to learn a whole lot about some of the, the database platforms. I'm incorporating open AI. So I have to learn about how are you you're using Langchain and Pinecone and incorporating all this and then hosting it. You know, so all that information is so easy to find. You know, people are talking about the latest solutions. So I think, and besides, when you go to a startup vendor or just small vendor, they may have been around for a long time and not a startup anymore, but you will get more handholding. You'll be more to the small vendor than you will to a large vendor. So they'll give you the treatment that they need and be more than happy to help you get up and running and provide you with, frankly, free professional services that you couldn't get anywhere else. Yeah, it sounds like the best bang for your buck is to work with a startup. Are there risks associated with working with a, someone who's not a blue chip provider? Yeah, I was just going to say, yes, there are risks. And it's kind of, I monitor companies to see if they're at risk of failing, especially in the, these last two years, it got really risky because they're running out of cash, right? They're funded. So I just track headcount and you can see August of 22, they all stopped hiring. So just the headcount that was going up like this all of a sudden leveled off. And since everybody did that, it's not necessarily a sign of bad help, just a sign of good management that they're doing that. And but then if they started hiring again in 2023, then you go, well, anybody they hire now, they can justify hiring and, and the big expense for that. So they're probably pretty healthy. So that's a good way to just keep track of them. And then, of course, monitor the news, the funding rounds, and you can start estimating how much money they got left, You know what kind of run rate they have, et cetera. You want to see the activity, right? Did they lay off their marketing team? Watch out. They're cutting to the quick, and the next step is to go out of business. So keep an eye on that. And then when you pick any vendor, make sure that you can back off the relationship, right? Just like all the rest I was talking about, deciding what's critical to your business, make sure that if that vendor fails, you've got a backup for the vendor as well. Yeah, if the vendor goes out of business, you want to make sure you're still covered. Yeah, exactly. If you use Microsoft as your operating system and you probably have to use Microsoft as your email provider, don't go all in on everything else. Don't host your business applications on Azure as well. Mix it up a little bit. You got AWS and Google Cloud to work with. Use their cloud stuff if you're going to use Microsoft for your desktop solution. So what do you call that? Where 
you're not monopolizing your own environment with one vendor. Is there a name for some diversity of your your tech stack and your security stack? Diversity is the term in avoiding a monoculture, right? Where everybody in your neighborhood plants the same tree and then one disease comes and now you have no trees, right? So that's why you diversify. And you should definitely have a different standard operating system for your servers than you do for your desktops and your phones. And we're almost there, right? And it's easy. Everybody can have an Apple desktop, Linux servers, and Google on their phones from Samsung. And boom, you're diverse, man. You are not going to have a worm that takes out your servers, your desktops, and your phones. Now, mind you, if you go with Windows servers, and at one point you could have gone with a Windows phone, everything goes at once. One worm takes down everything. And that's just bad practice. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious. We talked about the angel investors. We've talked about startups. What role do VCs play in cybersecurity? Because it sounds like, at least from my perspective, and I'm really excited to hear yours, the VCs come in and they kind of choose who's next, right? And it might be the best technology. It might be the best seller right? The CEO who's just really good at fundraising. We see all the headlines. They've raised this amount of money from all of these name brand VCs. And now they're inherently more trustworthy than maybe the bootstrap company who's really doing some awesome stuff with technology and serving their customers. I'm curious, how big of a role does the VC community play in cybersecurity? Yeah, it's an outsized role, I think bigger than in other technology arenas. And it comes from the fact that the cybersecurity industry has got this outside driver, right? The threat actors. So if there's an investment ecosystem in better storage, storage is driven solely by cost, speed, density, lightweight, energy usage, you know, measurable physical things. But security is driven by what are the cyber criminals cooking up next. So you need to get ahead of them and we need to have operating companies with solutions to get ahead of them uh, faster than you would just a normal evolution of products. So the VCs allow that to happen, right? They are pouring money into cybersecurity startups. Those companies often operate with no profits all the way up until the point they're acquired and or go public. And even after they go public, think in Zscaler, it accidentally became profitable, but it didn't intend to until four or five years after it went public. And that's because it takes, you know, massive amounts to grow fast enough to take advantage of the opportunity that the, you know, the cyber criminals have created really. Yeah. And, and let's talk about that growth because I've seen podcasts that are dedicated to the vendor customer relationship, the relationship between the different providers and security buyers and how these security buyers are saying, hey, we hate the way that you're reaching out to us. You're flooding our inboxes. Your SDRs are calling my cell phone every day. Like, How do we bridge the gap where a provider who raises a substantial amount of capital and now they're on this VC hamster wheel, this grow at all costs, even if their solution is awesome, they're frustrating customers with the way that they're constantly reaching out and these security buyers are bombarded with outbound prospecting efforts. And while it makes sense for the vendor because they have to acquire customers now, 
where are there opportunities for vendors to maybe flip the script and be more aligned with the way customers actually want to buy? And how have you seen that change from maybe 10 years ago to now in terms of the way that buyers want to buy in security? Yeah, I can tell there's a high level of frustration on the part of CISOs, who of course have ultimate buying decision power at large organizations, because they all complain about just how they're being bombarded. And they are not actively looking for a particular solution, and yet somebody's trying to sell them a particular solution, which is a problem. I think the vendors should be a little more cognizant of that and do a better job of educational marketing instead of the direct sales push. Build your funnel by building interest in what you're doing and tell the world about you know successes you've had and certainly contribute to the vast knowledge base we have of threat actors and how they operate and get attention that way. In the meantime, because CISOs in particular tend to get their ideas for what products to investigate through their peers, participate in the outreach that are available through peer groups, right? The ones that have marketing events where CISOs show up, offsites, et cetera. They usually try and limit, you know, the access on the part of the vendors. But, you know, the CISOs will see it. They'll start to get name recognition and will eventually, when they hear several times, it takes, what, eight times getting exposed to a message before somebody takes action. You got to drive towards that eight times. And don't let it be eight emails from your SDR because that's just going to get you put into the spam box or blocked. Let it be, you know, news article, blog post that gets shared by everybody on LinkedIn. I don't know, commercial on TV. You know, certainly I've seen Sentinel One commercials. I've seen CrowdStrike commercials. Who else? You know, it's, I pay attention to seeing commercials. That tells you some. Yeah, it's really fascinating because I remember growing up watching the NFL on Sundays. I had never in my life seen a cybersecurity commercial and now I'm seeing billboards in airports. I'm seeing, you know, commercials during NFL games of Cisco and, and other massive companies that are now promoting and creating commercials for their cybersecurity solutions. Is that an effective go-to-market strategy? Do CISOs truly respond when they see a commercial during a Vikings game? Oh, I think if a CISO saw a commercial, that would be a very, very effective opportunity for the vendor, for sure. No question. But is having a commercial that costs hundreds of thousands to produce and put out there to get one fan of the Vikings. But I don't know if that's good return on investment, but it certainly will be a good reinforcement because the CISO is going to go, wow, hey, I know those guys. I just met with them. That's a cool thing. You never have that reaction when you see a commercial for yet another geriatric product that I seem to get inundated with. I don't go, oh, I know those guys. It is a sign of having too much funding when you see those commercials, for sure. The other thing that actually I don't think is a good idea is sponsoring these, you know, giant sporting events, PGA Tour, auto racing. Doesn't work for me. I don't know if it works for the vendors themselves. Yeah, I know. I see a lot of stuff from like, oh, that's an interesting partnership. But it sounds like you're saying that 
a lot of the vendors should focus more on brand than on direct one-to-one outreach, trying to just go in cold and book a meeting, but really focusing on brand awareness, which is be everywhere all the time and allow customers to come to you when they have that problem that you can hopefully solve for them. How big is brand versus direct outreach? And are there any cybersecurity companies that are doing it cut above the rest in terms of building that brand the right way? So I think a lot of effort should be put into brand so that there's one name recognition, which is really hard to do in this day and age with 3,600 vendors. If your brand starts with CY, you really have to do some effort to differentiate between all the cyber this and cyber this. I've lost count of how many there were, but over 80 companies whose names begin with CY. If you have to reinforce a very simple message, you know, we are the data security company so that when some people are talking about a data security problem, they think of your company name and they call you up and say, can you help us? That's what you're driving for with brand recognition. And it's that, you know, tie your name to the problem that you solve and just hammer it constantly. And do not say that you protect digital risks. That's not going to work. I'm very curious what people will find in your security yearbook. What is it? Why do you work so hard on it? You've been doing it for a long time. What will they discover if they pick it up? You know, it's my life's work. I was at RSA 2019 signing another book in a booth. And I realized that I needed to write a book and have it at RSA 2020. And so I was walking around, I kept talking to founders in their little booths, you know, on the periphery of the expo floor. And they'd say they're so excited. They're doing something, you know, with this and that. And I'd say, oh, it's just like this other company. And they go, who's that? Never heard of them because it was 15 years ago and they had sold or gone out of business. And that's when I realized that we are losing our own history. And I've always noted that when a company fails and goes out of business, there's you can't Google why they went out of business because by that time they fired the marketing team and the PR team. And no, besides that, nobody's going to issue press releases about how they're going out of business. So there's no news. There's plenty of news about their customer wins and their financing and all the rest but then no explanation of what happened to them. So that's why I decided we needed a history book. So that's what this is. It's a history of the IT security industry. Thankfully, most of the pioneers of the industry are still around, so I can reach out to them and I can get uh, Gil Schwed, founder of Checkpoint, for an interview. Amit Yaran, who's the founder of Riptech, now CEO of Tenable. So I've got, like, I think I'm up to 18 founders that I've interviewed for the book, and it's just put everything in one place. It's only history of the internet, of the cybersecurity. Yeah, that's so fascinating and only becomes more valuable as time goes on. Is this something that you would consider a piece of your life's work? Is this something that you intend to continue doing for years and years to come? I definitely do. I took the next step. So far, I've published four annual volumes. Next year, it'll be published by Wiley. So now there'll be a real publishing house handling distribution and getting it out there. And I can just focus on writing it every year, not with the design and the packaging of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. What goes into writing it? I know you're doing interviews, you're going to conferences, you have a ton of data, just given the day-to-day work that you're doing. What goes into writing a security yearbook where you're just documenting the history of cybersecurity? Yeah. So every year I need to basically try and capture what the big motions in the industry were that year. And and then I've, I get the data on all the M&A activity that went on and publish that in a list that comes from America's Growth Capital, a private equity firm. And then I publish, you know, the major breaches comes from uh, an organization that's tracking those. This last year, for the first time, I added the top 100 open source security tools. And then, of course, the hard part is creating the directory, which is the back half of the book, which is all the vendors by country, category, and state. And then I track their size and all that. So the directory gets in there. That's the last thing we do, right? We do that, capture that data on January 1st and then publish it within months. I can see on your face and hear in your voice, you care. Richard, and it comes through in so much authenticity. Why cybersecurity? Of all the things, I mean, you have a wonderful mind. You could be successful in so many different domains. How did you choose cybersecurity? Why are you staying in it? And what does it mean to you? It chose me. I just stumbled into it. I started out as a aerospace engineer. I wanted to build rockets. That wasn't happening when I graduated, so I built car seats for 11 years here in uh, Detroit, discovered the internet, started an ISP, moved from my ISP to somebody else's ISP that had a security focus. They were a checkpoint reseller and created the first MSSP. And I just, I loved it, right? It's an industry that changed so much faster than automotive, you know, which is a 10 year design cycle. And in security, it's about a six month cycle of creating new defenses, bad guy catching up and creating counter offenses and just keep going like that. Just to be clear, you're saying that cybersecurity is a six month cycle of new solutions, bad guys figuring out how to exploit those new solutions and then having to spin up even more new solutions. It's a six month cycle. That seems really quick. Is it really moving that fast? Totally. In comparison to, you know, automotive, which is 10 years and defense, you know, physical missile systems and stuff, 25 years. So if you're stuck to aerospace, I would have had one project my entire career. And if you're in automotive, you have one project before you become a chief engineer for the next project. So you basically have no experience when you're creating a new car. You're doing it fresh, which is not a good thing for the car industry. In security, man, you've got people been there, done that. They've just been through these cycles so fast that they're really, really good at it. And I just love being in an industry with people like that. Absolutely. And I'm really curious, and this is a hypothetical situation, so bear with me. If there were a perfect founder, they were omnipotent about all things cybersecurity. They had an endless war chest of fundraising and they come to you and they say, Richard, whatever you tell me to work on, I'm going to build it. What does the cybersecurity industry need? What would you ask that founder to build for the future of cybersecurity and why? I would tell them to solve the solar winds problem. And for some reason, 
Solar Winds, of course, was massive attack against eighteen thousand customers of a company that made network monitoring solutions, and the attack came through a software update from Solar Winds. In other words, their own CI/CD processes have been compromised, and the attackers, which happened to be a Russian spy agency, the SRV, had managed to get a company to compromise all of its own customers. And for some reason, the U.S. government and all the pundits think the answer to that problem is solar wind should do a better job. And now we even have the SEC chiming in this week. And yes, software developers should do a good job of security, but I'm not going to spend my career telling them to do a better job of security. That is a thankless task. And we've been telling software developers forever, shift left, do security, build it in instead of afterwards. Yep. Okay, great. Love it. But that's like preaching, right? It's just like, be better. Don't drink on Friday nights. You know, we've seen that story over and over and over. It doesn't work. Doesn't solve the ultimate problem. And the ultimate problem is that the SolarWinds customers trusted an update from their software supplier. And that there's a place for zero trust. Never, ever trust a software update. Do not be the first person to install a software update. Do not automatically say yes to Microsoft whenever they want to update these critical vulnerabilities. In Microsoft's case, you know, give it 48 hours, but in something like SolarWinds, you'd have to give it a lot longer because it took nine months from the update to when we learned that the update was compromised. So anyways, solve that problem. You know, every single organization in the entire world would need that. So if I totally knew the answer to that, I'd drop everything and raise funding and I would create that problem, but I don't. But it's going to involve reverse engineering. You have to be able to download the update, open it up, compare it to the previous version you installed. In other words, see what changed. And it could highlight some odd things when you did that. There are certainly tools that will do that. Mind you, there's contractually, you're not allowed to reverse engineer your software updates. So let the big companies and the government step in and say, yeah, you know, you can reverse engineer if it's purpose, if the purpose is to make sure it's secure and you're not going to damage it's self-defense. It's allowed. So is the technology already there? It's just legislation that's limiting? No, no. The technology is there. Just the message is too strongly in favor of fix solar winds, the company and their processes instead of, oh my God, it'd be so easy to message around, right? We've got plenty of examples from the flame virus, which was a targeted attack using a faked Microsoft update. We've got not pet yet, the most damaging attack in history, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of losses. That was a compromised software update from an accounting software package in Ukraine. Go all the way back to summer of 2004, the uh, Olympics in Athens, software update to Ericsson switches turned on lawful intercepts so people could spy on conversations in Athens. So well known amongst really bad actors. And it just wait till the cyber criminals figure out how they can push a Microsoft update or an Adobe update or any common software package and immediately brick everybody's computer. And sure, it'd be nice to be the one that didn't accept that update when all that happens. So I'm curious, I have Google Chrome open 
and I have a little red button in the top right corner that says update. And you're saying that we should be slow to press that button and you don't want to be the first one, even though it's coming from Google. I mean, Google's this massive company. I trust Google. And they're telling me to update it because there's all of these critical vulnerabilities that they're going to patch. And I don't want to be uh, breached. I don't want my computer to be infected. And your perspective is be slow to press that button. That's a hot take, Richard. I've never heard that before. And you've walked us through why. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense, but it's kind of counterintuitive. You'd think pressing that button to update is going to make me more secure, but it could potentially put me at risk and in, in my business and a tough pill to swallow. And it sounds like there's no solution for it right now outside of kind of wait and see. And is there a way for me to know, should I wait one week or should I wait three months? I mean, it was nine months for solar winds. And so how do I even know when I should update? Right. And that's trouble with my advice to delay is you can't wait nine months. That's crazy. You do have to update faster than that, but you can take measures right during the, you know, the vulnerabilities that they're patching for. So you can protect against those vulnerabilities and the exploits against those vulnerabilities as they come out. You can do that in the network. You know, just don't expose that system to the vector that those come in over. It's harder to give you advice on Chrome other than never, ever use Chrome. That's crazy. Chrome has the most vulnerabilities of any browser and any app ever, like 2,000 a year that just you're going to get hit through your Chrome browser. And what browser do you recommend? Well, let's see. How about not Safari, not whatever Windows is now, Edge, and not Chrome. So in other words... Use Mozilla, Firefox, any of the other ones. Get the ones that are, hey, we're secure and respect your privacy. That's awesome. Richard, we walked through a lot today, and I really appreciate you coming on. I can't wait to watch this back to distill the insights from this conversation. And I would love to catch up again and review a lot of the things that are in your Substack. I would have loved to dive into today. But thank you so much for joining. And if there's one message that you have for our audience, what is it? What should they be thinking about moving into 2024 as it pertains to cybersecurity? What's on your mind? Any parting words? Yeah, if you think about it, cybersecurity is not necessarily recession-proof, but attackers, their industry is completely recession-proof. It even thrives during a recession. So... You don't get relief when the economy is bad, people are out of work, inflation is up, exchange rates are horrible, wars are going on. You don't get any relief. You have to keep doing the daily work to stay secure. Wonderful. Richard, thank you so much. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, James. No BS Cybersecurity is brought to you by SIFT.ai. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. On behalf of the team here at SIFT, thank you for learning with me.